This episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2017. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org slash podcasts. Well, I hear people saying, well, how could the God of the Old Testament have commanded genocide? Well, how could the God of the Old Testament have allowed the treatment of women? You know, I, I think we need to be ready to answer moral questions that are being raised by our contemporaries. And, and by the way, I like that. I like that they're making moral charges against the God of the Old Testament because he's going to come off just fine if we do a good job of explaining the passage and it's going to give us a good gospel opportunity to talk to them. Absolutely. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible, sponsored by Crossway. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and this is the podcast for people who love God's Word, and we go to God's Word anticipating that God will speak to us through His Word, that the Spirit will use His Word to change us in the most beautiful ways. But we are also people who go to the Bible not just for ourselves, but we're looking to deeply understand, even own particular books of the Bible, because we're going to be leading perhaps a small group through it, perhaps a Sunday school class, uh, perhaps even our own family, but we're going to be teaching God's Word to others. And today, I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I have as my guest today, Ligon Duncan. Ligon is the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also the John E. Richards Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. So, Ligon, we've been trying to do this for a long time now. I'm so glad the day has come when we have sat down to talk for Help Me Teach the Bible. Thank you for your patience, and it's been great, great to finally be able to say that we're doing this. Right. For many years, you were at First Presbyterian mm-hmm. Church in Jackson, Mississippi, 18 years. Um, at just age 28, I was thinking about this as I looked at your Bible, at just 28, that's when you began really teaching the Bible, not just in the um, in the church, but at a seminary level at age 28 at RTS in Jackson. You and some of your buddies co-founded Together for the Gospel, a ministry that's impacted a lot of people. But when I think of you, Ligon, I think of you as a great encourager. Hmm. I appreciate that you've encouraged me. and So encourager extraordinaire as churchman. And the way you love your denomination and yet beyond the bounds of your denomination. But I think mostly I love it that you love to laugh. <laughs> I do love to laugh. That's true. We're going to talk today about a book that you have taught deeply. Um, a book that when I ask other people, what should I talk to Ligon about? Because there would be so many books of the Bible and so many topics of the Bible. In fact, I want to schedule another time to talk soon about covenant theology, one of your real specialties. But a couple of people, I I had thought about this, and a couple of people said, talk to him about numbers. So why would those people tell me that I should talk about numbers with you? Probably because I preached on numbers at Together for the Gospel, and a lot of a lot of folks uh, heard my exposition of a of a, a really an obscure section of Numbers chapter five, just about four verses, and I, I think it opened up for them how significant the book was, and that was my sort of one off sermon to do what I had done in a whole series at First Presbyterian Church. 
I was trying to do in that one sermon what I tried to convince my congregation of over a whole series of weeks. I mean, it probably took me a year to get through numbers at the church. And, and that is to say it's a, it's, it's a book that's overlooked. It's got a terrible title. I mean, I tell, I tell people it's the worst title in the English Bible because a lot of people, they hear numbers and their eyes glaze over, Yawn. you know? And, uh, and I tell people the Hebrew title is much better. In the wilderness, that could be a mm, Steven like Spielberg <laughs> kind of thing, you know? But, uh, that number, and, and of course the numbers is there because of the numbering of the people of God and the census, which is really important in the book. We'll get to talk about that, but it does, it, that doesn't convey when you're working through your English Bible. Plus, it's got all these unpronounceable proper names. And for Bible teachers, one of the things you're scared to do is stand up in front of a class and read a chapter full of names that you've never heard of. They're only found in that place in the Bible, and you have no idea how to pronounce them. So uh, it, it, it has what a lot of challenges to it. What do you do when you don't know how to pronounce well, them? You probably know how to pronounce all well, the Well, one, you know, proper nouns are really tough in most languages. You know, pro- proper nouns will have different... Uh, rules for pronunciation than regular uh, words. And so I, I have a little thing that I do. There, there are lots of ways you could go at this. There, you can go online, and there is a, um, a Hebrew makron where a Shephardic Jewish rabbi reads the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, Sephardic Jews have their own pronunciations. It's not a universal you know, pronunciation of Hebrew, but I like to hear a Hebrew rabbi read the Bible. And so when I'm getting ready to read an entire chapter, whether it's in Joshua or Judges or Numbers or Chronicles, of really obscure proper names, I will listen to the Jewish rabbi over and over just to see how he handles certain proper names. Now, the way we pronounce names in English, it's different. I mean, if you, you know, used to in So you're not necessarily Bibles, trying to match No, them. no, no, no. But you, you, you want, first of all, you want to be able to do it confidently. Yes. You know, that's the I mean, big that's thing, the big isn't thing it? is people want to know, okay, you've thought about this. You didn't just get up this morning and for the first time read the, the passage for yourself. And, and those names, they're in the Bible, so they're important to God. And so you want to do a good job, as best a job as you can. We, we would practice this as ministers when we were, we always read through Bible books in the services. And so there are passages where, as a minister, you've got to work for a while to be able to stand up and read that passage well. That is maybe one of the most intimidating things about teaching through the book because, you know, you know, if you're going to teach a Bible class, you're, you're going to read a substantial portion of the passage that you're going to be teaching that day. And if it's all, unpronounceable, it's intimidating. Let's say we tell whoever it is we're teaching the Bible to, well, we're the next book we're going to study is Numbers, and maybe we do see those yawns because yeah. they – Maybe we weren't smart enough to say, we're going to teach the book in the wilderness, yeah. <laughs> use the Hebrew yeah. title. And so you, you sent some kind of resistance. How would you explain yeah. to people why why we would want to study this in, book? In the context of my congregational life, what, what I was doing, I had been encouraged early on to, to read and preach through the Psalms. Jim Boyce read through the Psalms constantly at, at 10th Pres, and of course preached through the Psalms on one occasion. And I'd had some older, wiser brothers that said, you know, you'll bless your congregation if you preach through the Psalms, because, you know, what does Calvin say? That the Psalms are the anatomy of every part of the Christian soul. 
And uh, in, in the Psalms, you have the summary of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And so I had been encouraged to do that. But there's 150 Psalms. It can take you a while to get through the Psalms. So I started thinking about this. How am I going to do that so that my people aren't psalmed to death? <laughs> and so what I decided to do is, okay, I'll take each book of the Psalms, first book, second book, third book, fourth book, fifth book, break them up, and in between each book of the Psalms, I'll do one of the books of the Pentateuch. So I did the first book of the Psalms, and then I did Genesis, and then the second book of the Psalms, and then Exodus. So in my congregational life, they knew eventually we were getting to numbers. That was one thing that was happening there. But even when I got to numbers, I I wanted to convince them that this was going to be well worth their time. And I, I pointed out a number of things to them. One is that Numbers is an undersold book in terms of the excitement of the story that it contains. At least half of the book has some really exciting bits like the first half of the book of Exodus. And you don't think of that with Numbers. You know, Even people that get excited about Leviticus, it's not action in Leviticus. It's all the symbolic ritual that you get excited about. And you learn about atonement and you learn about how these rituals play out and are interpreted by the book of Hebrews. But in Exodus, it's action that people think of. It's the Red Sea and all of those sort of things. And people don't realize there's just that much action in numbers. Now, just like Exodus, half of the book of Exodus is building the tabernacle. You know, So it's not exciting narrative, but it works exactly the same way. You know, that all of that t- you know, tabernacle construction stuff that comes at the end of Exodus is directly tied into the action part of Exodus because why were the children of Israel coming out of Egypt to go into the wilderness to meet with God to worship? So it makes total sense that half of the book would be the building of the worship structure because the whole reason they came out of Egypt was to meet with God and worship. Same deal in numbers. If you can help your people understand, A, there's a lot of action here, folks. B, when there's not action, when there are strange laws, Moses Moses isn't just doing this arbitrarily. There are reasons why these laws are there, and, and they fit actually with a the narrative. They're, they're there to illustrate the overarching story of the book. So I, I tried to explain to people, it's got a lot of action. Even the strange rituals you're going to find out directly relate to themes that God is teaching in the narrative. And I, I tell people too, this is your history. These are your people. You know, if, if you're a Christian, uh, you are an heir of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And that means those are your people. Uh, I'm, I'm from the South, and Southerners are kind of weird about our people. Um, when I was a little boy, my dad would take me out into, the, into family cemeteries on a Saturday, and he would say, now, son, these are your people. And then he would tell me about, you know, all my crazy, you know, aunts and uncles and grandparents and things of this nature. Well, I mean, these are our people. And I think helping Christians understand these are your forebears in the faith. And Paul will make that direct connection in 1 Corinthians. You know, he he asked Christians to go back and look at Exodus and go back and look at Numbers and to learn from from that, both positively and negatively, by the way, uh, that learn positively, they followed the rock and the rock was Christ, learn negatively, don't grumble like they did against the Lord. So he asks us to go back and look at the story of our forebears and learn from it. So I, I tried to use persuasives like that. I, I said, yeah, it, it, it's a book with a lot of stories about people behaving badly. 
<laughs> mm, just like we do. You know, so any connection I could make for for my folks, I tried to make as we started the study of the book. And it start you know, it starts hard because it starts with census. You know, and so, you know, if you're if you're a Bible teacher, you're hoping you can hop into like Red Sea, you know, <laughs> but boom, you start with census. So you really have to stop and say, why is this here? Why does this matter? And that, you know, I, I think that's part of the trick of a Bible teacher is is showing people why it's here and why it matters, how it functions and then what it does. Um, because that's what readers of the book can get intimidated by very quickly because they open up and, you know, two verses into the book and you're into this long Long series of names names that you've never heard before and you'll never hear again. And if the Bible teacher can explain, look, this is an indication that God cares about every last one of his people. There's a warmth in the, teaching that, isn't there? Absolutely. So mm-hmm. it, it just if if you can help your people understand why things are there, it you know even if they're not the most exciting part of the passage or the book, they, they, they'll appreciate it. Well, we'll be linking to your sermon series on mm-hmm. numbers. So uh, those who are listening to this, if you want to hear how Ligon handled each of these uh, aspects and parts of numbers, you'll be able to uh, find those links on the website. But you've kind of already alluded to this, but I noticed that when you started teaching through the book of numbers, you didn't begin in numbers. I mean, your first week was not at the census. You actually started teaching numbers in 1 Corinthians 10. So why and how did you do that? Well, again, I tell my students there's a sense in which the New Testament is the Christian's hermeneutical guide to the Old Testament. In in the sense that if you want to know how to interpret the Old Testament, the New Testament is filled with instructions and examples for how to do that. And I I noticed in 1 Corinthians 10 that as Paul is exhorting us to do certain things and not to do certain things, that he actually went back to the events of both Exodus and Numbers and drew applications out of those events and, and applied them to Christians. My guess was not many of my people have been doing their devotions in the book of Numbers, you know, now leading they, up they to my... They knew a couple Bible stories they from Numbers. They would have known Balaam's from, ass. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they would have known maybe the, the, the raising up of the mm-hmm. serpent, uh, the bronze serpent. You know, you know a few stories out of Numbers, but it's, you know, if people give you their top five Bible books, it's probably not going to be there. You know, people may say Romans or John or Exodus or Genesis but or Psalms, but Numbers is probably not going to be up there. So I thought if I'll start with the new, uh, you know, a New Testament book and Paul, who my people are more familiar with, and 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 show how he thinks this is important for us in living the Christian life. That'll help them make the connection. So that's that's why I started there with that First Corinthians passage because he he says two things that just blow me away. He he says one that these things were written down for our instruction, and then even more strikingly, he says these things happened for our instruction. And so it it, it amazes me that here's Paul saying that these events that impacted real people's lives, I mean, entailed 
flesh and blood human beings with feelings like ours and aspirations like ours and struggles and sorrows and, and joys like ours, that what was happening to them happened for us. So how expensive is mm-hmm. is that lesson that God is providing for us as his people upon whom the end of the ages has come, if if what has happened to our forebears in an earlier age happened for us. And so that those two ideas in First Corinthians ten just blew me away and said, friends, if we don't go back in and pay attention to those stories, we are not paying attention to something very expensive that God prepared for us. Those mm-hmm. kind of things convince us that the Bible is not a merely human book. Right. Don't they? Yeah. All right, so help us understand some of the structure of the book of Numbers. I'm not sure how many sermons you broke Numbers down into. I was, as I was coming today, I was trying to remember. I think it was maybe 52. That's probably more yeah. than we're going to spend on the book of Numbers. Uh, so maybe we're thinking more it's 10 to 12 weeks. So help us both with understanding uh, the big sections of the book of Numbers. What does its structure look like? And then take that and tell us how might we break down this book? Uh, what are the what are the things we've got to do with it? There are 36 chapters in the book. There are about 1,288 verses in the English um, translation. And there are different legitimate ways to outline it. But I, <clears throat> I follow an outline, really, that I lifted from Phil Riken. Uh, Phil is is a person. Whenever Phil okay, has let's written just on stop something, there for a second because most of us as Bible teachers, we're we find something that looks really good, like somebody else did it, and we're not sure. You know what's what's just blatant stealing, <laughs> what's lazy, and, and what's acceptable. What I do is I try and outline a Bible book for myself. Apart from getting Apart other from helps. Apart from other helps, and then I will get 15 different helps because I don't want to rely on my own isolated judgment. I want to be in a community of good Bible teachers, and I want to look at how they handle and how they break down. And so what will happen is I'll look at all those 15 helps, and two things will happen. One is my outline will get modified by my interaction with the way different good Bible teachers have outlined. And I'll see strengths and weaknesses. And frankly, I know you have this experience. Sometimes there are two different ways of doing it, and you want to do it both ways, but you have to decide one way or the other. So you can tell your class, it's not the only way to do it. If you do it this other way, you see these things, but this is the way we're going to do it. Um, The other thing that happens is after you've looked at all those helps, you find the most helpful helps. You know, I mean, I start off reading typically 20 commentaries when I'm working through a Bible book. Five, six sermons into the series, I know my go-to folks. I mean, I, I know I'm on the wavelength of those folks, and they're going to help me. And Phil Riken is just one of those guys, no matter what Phil writes, it helps me. Okay? And so I just, if Phil has written something, I read it. So he, Phil and his dad did a... Um, a, a Bible handbook, kind of like the old Halley's Bible handbook. They did something called Riken's Bible handbook. And uh, it all of it's introductory material. So I, I look at that along with things like the ESV study Bible. 
which has outlines which has for outlines for everything and for so for teachers for those introductions to study Bible a good study Bible introduction a good Bible handbook those things are invaluable because you read 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 but then you've got to distill and if you're going to teach numbers in 10 weeks you got to make some judgments and you need some help to make those judgments so I find Phil helpful. I also use the, it's out of print now, but you can get it online if you have an ESV study Bible. His literary study Bible had great introductory material. And so I always looked at his outlining. And so I would outline, I'd look at my helps, I'd change my outline based on looking at the helps, and then I would find the helps that helped me most, and I'd kind of zero on in. Okay, thank and you. So That's good. The way, the way Phil outlines, um, the book is chapters one to 10 is the preparation for the journey. Then uh, chapter 10 to 30 is the journey in the wilderness. And then chapter 31 to the end is when the people are at the edge of the promised land. So he sort of has a three-part outline of the book. And so if you're going to do 10 weeks, I'd want to keep that outline in, in mind in terms of balancing the attention that I give to different parts of the book. Because if you, if you, if you break it down into three parts and you've got 10 weeks, there are enough exciting elements in each of those parts that you can dive down into them as your focal point on the, you know, the maybe three weeks or so that you're going to take on each part. Well, as you start in, I, I guess I keep realizing that a lot of people are like me in that, you know, I grew up in the church and I always had all the right answers in Sunday school. But the Old Testament was a muddle of mm-hmm. stories for me mm-hmm. for most of my life. And I couldn't have to- put on a timeline the right. things that happened. So when we start in the numbers, there's a sense in which we have to give them a sense of what led up That's to this. True. And That's don't we? That's absolutely true. Yes, yes. What do they need to know? Well, one is, you're right, you need to start with the timeline. You need to place where this happens. And a lot of people don't realize that that most of the Pentateuch, most of the first five books of the Bible, um, take place in, a, a or a good bulk of them, really from the, from the middle of Exodus to the middle of Numbers, you're at Mount Sinai. So from... Half, you know, second half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, first half of Numbers, you're at Mount Sinai. And I, I'm not sure when that dawned on me. It may have been after seminary, frankly. Are you like this when you, when you, cause I know you go to lots of different towns. You, you want to find things that get you oriented because you feel disoriented when you're in a strange place. So you're looking for things that, that help you feel, okay, I know which direction I'm going. That kind of thing helps me. So chronologically, you know, setting something in context is huge. Um, spatially or locationally setting it in context, like saying we're going to be still at Sinai for the first 10 chapters of this book. We hadn't left Sinai yet. We're still there. Um, is th- that's, that's huge. And, um, and, and then helping people understand how that part of the story fits into the larger story both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. All right, well, let's dive into numbers a little bit. We've already talked about how chapter 1 here begins with this census, and you already gave us a feel for how we can get to the hearts of our people in pointing out that God's people are 
there's God's people as a whole, but God cares about yeah. his people yeah. as individuals, which is evidenced by the listing of this name. But there's there are certainly some other purposes for why this book begins with a census. So we're there at Sinai. They've gotten the law. Um, they've built the tabernacle. Right. As we've Exodus finished, they've built the tabernacle and then a census. So why did that happen? Yeah. And how are we going to teach this? Law tabernacle people journey just watch that happen from you know um exodus 20 to 24 then you know take out the golden calf incident you know really the rest of of exodus to chapter 40 all of leviticus and then numbers god gives the law the he he he's redeemed his people out of egypt um to be a peculiar people, uh, to meet with him and to uh, to dwell in his presence, to commune with him, to worship him. He gives them a law. That law is not in order that they might save themselves. He's brought them out of Egypt. It's huge. I tell people, start with Exodus 19. If you're going to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, don't fail to frame it with Exodus 19, or your people will misunderstand what you're telling them. God's not telling you how to save yourself in the Ten Commandments. He's telling you how his saved people live. And so the the law is given in the wake of the redemption that is accomplished in Exodus. Then there's this focus on the tabernacle, because the tabernacle is the place where the special presence of God is going to be manifested to his people. And as they journey, and they're they're not going to get journeying until Numbers 11, where's the tabernacle going to be? Right in the middle of them. So the, the people of Israel are going to be organized in camps around the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is going to be right in the middle of them journeying in the wilderness. And this is, again, this is something that is redemptively um, important. When God comes to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, after David has said to his friend Nathan, you know, Nathan, I live in a beautiful cedar palace, and I'm looking over there at the Ark of the Covenant, and it's in a tent. Uh, that's not right for me to be in a palace and for the symbol of God's presence with these people to be in a tent. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan says, the Lord's with you, David. Go do all that's in your heart. And then the Lord comes to Nathan that night and says, no, no, no. You go tell, you go tell David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And there's this beautiful play on words in the passage. But one of the things that God says to David there is, David, when in all of the journeyings of my people did I ask for you to build me a house? And, and what God is saying is, you remember when you all lived in tents? I lived in one too, right in the middle of you. And you know, now the, the tabernacle was a big tent. It was an expensive tent. It was a nice tent. It was a very particularly designed tent, but it was a tent. And um, that's remarkable that the God who made heavens and earth identified with his people by dwelling in a tent in the midst of them. So that all those tabernacle instructions are, you know, they may seem weird. And why are you spending all this time on, on describing Moses, how the tabernacle, because that indicates 
the place where God is going to manifest his presence with his people. It's really, really important. It's so important if you remember when, after the golden calf incident, and Moses intercedes for the people, Lord, don't, I know they deserve to be killed. Don't kill them. Please spare them. And God says, fine, I'll spare them, but I'll, you lead them up to the promised land. I'm not going with you. Remember what Moses says? Okay, if you're going to do that, just go ahead and kill us now because you're the, you're the reason we want to go to the promised land. It's the promised land is not the blessing. You're the blessing. It's your presence that's a blessing. So all of that tabernacle and journey stuff, it's all tied up with enjoying the communion of the living God, which is what we're created for. We were created to glorify and enjoy God forever. And his presence is what allows us to do that. And it's something that we lost through the fall. Adam and Eve were driven out of his presence in the garden. And in redemption, we're brought back in to enjoy his presence. So law, tabernacle, then people, the, the, the numbering of the people and of the tribes, and then the locating of the tribes as they prepare to journey are all part of having God's people gathered around him. And every last one of them matters. You know, what, what his, his, you know, our name is on his hand. We, you know, we, we often remind ourselves. And here's the Old Testament version of that in the very first chapter. Uh, my people matter. Their leaders matter. Their tribes matter. I want their names written down. I'm not going to forget them. This is going to remind you that I'm not going to forget my people. That's what it's all about. What, what am I doing this for? I'm doing this because my people is the inheritance that I, you know, you, you ever ask the question, what does God get out of redemption? And the answer is you. That's what God gets out of redemption. You're his people. That's what he wants. He wants mm-hmm. you. And this is a huge way that he can say, I want every last one of you. Now, the negative way that that functions is um, in the book, so many of his people clearly don't want him. You know, I mean, he he wants them. He wants every last one of them. And in the wilderness, thousands will fall because they don't want him. And uh, so that that's another reason why this book is so important for the Christian life. And it's one of the reasons why Paul picks up on the story in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's talking with the Corinthians. You know, people, you're doing the same thing that they did. He wants you. You don't want him. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. The heading for chapter 1 in my ESV says, A Census of Israel's Warrior specifically. So it doesn't just say my people. Yes. It's warriors. What's that about? Well, he's the fighting men uh, are are being numbered, and uh, the the tribes are identified. Uh, notice just this repeated phrase. You can see it in verse forty, for instance. Every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Asher were forty one thousand five hundred. Mm-hmm. So this is an army. You know, so the the, the people is an army. I know that we're uncomfortable with those kind of metaphors today, but it's actually still a very good metaphor. And it's not something from 19th century English colonial conquest. It's right out of the Bible. So onward Christian soldiers may be blamed as being too militarist and colonialist in our own time. But actually, the the idea of God's people as an army is a very, very old idea. And because God... Is uh, his God and his people are about to wage war against idolatry, and um, so his people are 
conceived and right, even the the organization of their of their marching plans in the wilderness is the organization of a, of an army. If you've ever seen armies old, uh, armies in in the nineteenth century form up before battles, this looks just like a battle formation. And um, so I, I think that's not to be mm. missed. I like what you said there. It's not that they're going to war against other people. They're going to war against idolatry. Yeah. And specifically, it's going to be intended for them to rid God's land that belongs to him of the idolatry of the Canaanites. Absolutely. And, and, of course, part of that will be militaristic when they finally get to the land. You know, They will have to take out Ai, and they will have to take out Jericho, and they will have to fight against the inhabitants of the land. But a, a lot of that is a battle that's happening in their own hearts and lives. And you see that all the way from Genesis through Deuteronomy where they're battling. You know, They've got their own idols that they're trying to deal with. Well, that becomes clear as we begin working our way through numbers because here's this army, um, and we might expect we would see maybe some training on um, handling a sword or battle maneuvers. And yet as we get into these earlier early chapters, especially beginning in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we can say that the way to prepare for the kind of war they're going to do has to do with cleansing yeah. and with holiness. Yeah. Purification is huge in the book of Numbers, as it is in, in Leviticus. And because the, the warfare that you're fighting, the greatest battle is the battle of idolatry. And, and idolatry doesn't just mean bowing down to um, something that's been crafted out of stone or, or wood or some precious metal. Idolatry is loving and valuing anything or anyone above the living God. And so the, 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 the battle for, for treating God as he is, is huge. So Numbers 5, for instance, there are two really strange stories in number Numbers 5, um, verses 1 to 4, and then verse 11 to uh, 31 factor into this, this the, the importance of purity in the people of God. In verses 1 to 4, there are these laws about uncleanness. So if you are leprous and in... in the first five books of the Bible, that doesn't just mean Hansen's disease. It means a lot of things all the way up to and including what we call Hansen's disease. So serious skin ailments, people with discharges or people who've come into contact with dead bodies all have to be expelled from the camp. Why? Because of ritual purity. Purity is hugely important. And so Purity will be enforced in, in numerous ways. So that's especially ritual purity towards God. But at the end of the chapter, this bizarre adultery test that runs from 11 to 31, where if a man thinks that his wife has been unfaithful to him, he's to bring her to the priest and she's to go through this trial by ordeal, which is to do what? It's, it's designed to prove her purity. And so it's not only purity towards God, but it's purity in horizontal relations that is concerned. Those in are the, the book. kind of things that when we're teaching this to a modern audience, whoa, it's just like, what? I mean, that seems very uh, discriminatory toward women. 
It does, and if a Bible teacher doesn't address those kinds of things, you, you know, you're missing you're you're missing the boat. And and two things I love about the Old Testament there. One is most people are just totally unfamiliar with those kinds of scenes. They may instinctively know that those kinds of scenes are there, but they they're just unfamiliar with them. So you get the chance to introduce people in detail to things that they've really never thought about before. But then you really do have to answer those questions. So I, I had the privilege of preaching on on this um, the adultery test uh, for, for John MacArthur a number of years ago, and I spent a good bit of time addressing the kind of apologetic concerns that had. this looks like misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it looks very abusive. It looks like an abuse of power. But there, there's some fascinating things in this passage that let you know that God is looking out for falsely accused women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for instance, this is a, it's a trial by ordeal, and lots of ancient cultures had trials by ordeal. Um, and in, you know, even in our modern culture, we have things in pop culture in which we make fun of trials by ordeal. So Nancy, you and I are old enough to remember Steve Martin and Theodoric of York on Saturday Night Live. I bet this is the first <laughs> reference to Theodoric of York on Saturday Night Live that you've ever had in one of your podcasts. Maybe so. But you remember he was always, there was some, you know, um, put, you know put, a, put a stone around the witch, and if she drowned, she was innocent, but if she floated, she was a witch, and she needed to be burned at the yeah. stake. So it's a lose-lose trial by ordeal, okay? Um, and tons of ancient cultures had those kinds of ordeals, like, okay, have the woman grasp a red hot uh, iron, and if her hand is not burned, she's innocent. Okay, that's a great trial. Well, this one's fascinating. The trial by ordeal here is she has to drink uh, water that has had dust from the ground in front of this ritual site. Um, she, She has to drink it. Now, from a medicinal in a physical standpoint, though it might be unpleasant to taste, this would not have done anything. This would have absolutely had no negative physical effect. Um, and yet, by the way, there's tons of symbolism in that. You know, when what's the curse against Adam and Eve for their sin? They're going to return to the dust. I also wonder, I know people question the original canonicity of parts of John 8, but I wonder when Jesus is talking to the woman who's been caught in adultery and and is about to be judged, and he reaches down and he starts writing in the dust, whether that is a reference to Numbers chapter 5, and Jesus is, is just saying, I've tried you and I'm declaring you free. That of, makes of complete judgment, sense okay? that it would relate to you that. Know? So it's a, it's a glory. When you start putting those things in framework, people start realizing, okay, these aren't ancient, you know, sort of knuckle dragging Neanderthals. This is amazingly sophisticated stuff that only a good God could have come up with. No ancient culture would have come up with this. Ancient cultures would have come up with horrible trials by ordeal. These are things that are clearly designed to on the one hand, alleviate um, false accusations against an innocent person or to, to convince a person to come clean. Uh, the, you know, the things that the woman has to do, um, you know, she, she, has to, um, she has to read a curse. 
um, and 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 protest her innocence in the face of that curse. Well, you know, the idea is: do we do we realize how serious this is? So it's it's fast. The whole passage is fascinating, and I think if a Bible teacher will dig into it, and they're wonderful helps. Gordon Wenham on Numbers is a great help. Study Bibles and such will help you get into a hard passage like that and explain it to a modern audience in such a way that they understand that that God is a just and a wise God. He cares about the falsely accused as much as he cares about catching those who are perpetrators. And he he the whole passage is predicated upon a miraculous judgment. It's interesting that again, drinking this dust is not going to do anything to her. But if if there are physical signs of distension in her body, it, that clearly has to be something that God does because that would not happen because of drinking mm-hmm. the dust. So it's a it's a it's a great great passage for seeing the miraculous, for seeing how God cares about justice, for how He cares about relationships between men and women. I mean, isn't it interesting? You're in this book, not five chapters, and He's already talking about the purity of marriage. You know, he's talked about the purity of marriage at different points in Genesis. At the very beginning, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will come one flesh. And then you see all sorts of violations of that in the rest of the book of Genesis. Then the command is given again in Exodus, and the sanctity of marriage is, is upheld. And then, boom, you get here in the numbers again. And the importance of purity in marriage is clearly part of that battle against idolatry that he wants his people to take uh, part in. So Numbers 5 is just a neat, neat passage for two weird purification rules that clearly make sense. If, If you'll just explain them to moderns, moderns will go, okay, I, I understand that, Um and and I do think we have to have that kind of apologetic stance because whereas um, 25 years ago, I found people um, who, who objected to the authority of the Bible had objections like this. Well, I don't think Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, or I think the first five books of the Bible were composed from um, – edited materials that were gathered over a period of about a thousand years. They were put together about the sixth century, all these sort of historical critical. I don't hear that from young people. I hear people saying, well, how could the God of the old Testament have commanded genocide? Well, how could the God of the old Testament have allowed the treatment of women? You know, I, I think we need to be ready to answer moral questions that are being raised by our contemporaries. And, and by the way, I like that. I like that they're making moral charges against the God of the Old Testament, because he's going to come off just fine if we do a good job of explaining the passage, and it's going to give us a good gospel opportunity to talk to them. Absolutely. Well, as we move forward in Numbers, when we get to chapters 11 and 12, one of the big themes of the book of Numbers arises, and we discover it right there in the first verse of chapter 11, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. Uh, well, that's one thing about the book of Numbers, isn't it? Here's this thing. We think about complaining. We think, is it really that big of a deal? Yeah. And yet in the book of Numbers, complaining is a big problem. Right. And I I agree. And that's exactly what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 10. It's the complaining, the murmuring. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's fascinating to me that over and over in the story of Moses, complaining to God 
is encouraged. Complaining about God to his leaders is an act of spiritual treason. So God basically says, if you've got a complaint, bring it to me. That makes me, I I just can't help but interrupt, just to think about all the people who get the message, oftentimes from people at the church, in the church, it's okay to be angry with God, he can handle it. But you're describing something very different. Right. Taking our complaints to him is one thing, but to just settle into this, I can be angry with God because he hasn't done right by me. Right. You describe that as a a great evil. And it, the Psalms are all about that. You know, the Psalms, you know, Psalm 88 is, if there has ever been a complaint written, it's Psalm 88. And it's the beauty of it is God says, okay, write down that complaint, my child, and sing it to me as we, as we worship. Just sing that complaint to me, you know, week after week after week. Sing that complaint to me. I will hear that complaint. But when God's people start complaining about him, um, it, first of all, it lets you know that there's a distance between them in their hearts from God. They, they don't believe that he's good. Why would you bring your complaint to God? Well, you would bring your complaint to God because you believe God is good and he can do something about it. Why would you complain about God? Because you feel some distance from him. You don't really think that he's good and that he's concerned for you. And this kind of complaining is that kind of complaining. It's, it's God, you know, and, and you, you read this and you say, really? Okay, he brought you out of Egypt. He brought you across the Red Sea. He fed you with manna. How can you complain? But I mean, I so see myself in that. You know, I, I can I can recount the same mercies of the Lord that the people of God of old could 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 recount, and yet I can fall into that kind of complaining, which is why Paul's so concerned to warn us about it in First Corinthians. They 10. diminished the grace of redemption, and therefore their circumstances became so magnified to them it justified anger with God. And I suppose that's the same for us, and it's for the same reason we diminish the grace and gift that he has saved right. us from slavery to sin. Right. We think, well, that wasn't really the big, that big a deal. It's that's my, right. The, the problem I'm having now or the loss I've experienced now, that's the big deal. Correct. Well, here are God's people in the wilderness, and we haven't even gotten yet to the <laughs> section where they're going to send what is called spies, and we'll mm. talk about that. Were, were they spies? Um that we know are going to be sent into the land of Canaan with a report. But you've given us so much helpful background and foundation as we consider teaching through the book of Numbers. But we're going to bring this first part of our episode to a close, and we'll come back with part two and pick it up with the sending of the spies into the land. And remember, we're not just talking about numbers here. We're talking about their life in the wilderness. And we'll look forward to what you have to help us understand in the book of Numbers about this life and this journey through the wilderness. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including women's ministry in the local church by Dr. Duncan, our guest today. Crossway is also the publisher of Numbers, a commentary in the Preaching the Word commentary series by Ian Duguid, which is a tremendous resource on for teaching through this book. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.